So, you know, this world that we live in, this life that we live, we live in the midst of lots of different contrasts that sometimes can produce some tension. We've seen that even tonight. You know, we started off our time together thinking about this tragedy in Paris. And then I get up here to start talking and we're looking at this triumphant moment of our birthday Sunday. And, and we feel that in our lives, this contrast between tragedy and triumph and walking in that. I think all of us are familiar with contrast because it's such a part of who we are. And, and without contrast, many times we would not be able to see things for what they are. And just to help us understand, to help us see that I think all of us, we understand contrast pretty easily and pretty fully. We're going to do a little word association game here. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to say the first word that you think of, okay? Everyone participate in this, and we're walking in contrast. We're learning to understand uh, how big of a world, I mean, how big of contrast we experience in this world, okay? So I'm going to say one word. You say the first thing that comes to your mind. Everybody ready? All right, up. Very good. See, this is easy. You guys can do this. Open. There you go. North. There you go. Dead. Yeah. See, we all know this contrast that we experience. Without this contrast, sometimes we would fail to find the meaning in a lot of life. You know, true beauty and light is not truly appreciated until you experience something that is dark and disturbing, right? And you can experience uh, the beauty and the richness of something once you've experienced the absence of that thing. And so contrast is normal. It's a part of this world that we live in. And the story that we read tonight is we're going to experience this contrast in Mark's gospel. Now, unfortunately, we're going to be starting on kind of the bleaker side of that contrast, and it's going to feel kind of grim for a little while. I just want to prepare you as we walk through this. You're going to feel the weight and the heaviness of the contrast that Mark is walking us through. Uh, our story is going to start at the tail end of where we finished last night. And I'm going to kind of recap where we've been in Mark. It's been a long time. We started in January. So you may remember that at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, this man Jesus shows up in first century uh, Palestine area around Jerusalem and in the villages of Galilee. And he walks through these villages pronouncing the coming of this new kingdom. He's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is near. Turn and look at this kingdom. Reorient your lives around this kingdom. And then he went about and he illustrated what this kingdom looked like, right? He started healing those who were sick. He took lame people who'd never walked and he helped them stand up and walked. He took blind people who'd never seen and he helped them to see. He cast out demons and he taught. He had such beautiful teachings about love and hope and joy. He stood up to religious bullies and wouldn't let them push around those who were around them. I remember about halfway through the story, he starts telling his disciples, hey guys, I'm, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be betrayed and I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna rise again. Remember, he tells them this three times and they still don't fully understand what he meant. And then last week, we get to the cross and Dave stood up here and talked with us about the importance of not only being familiar with the cross, but really being formed by the cross. So our story tonight picks up Right in the middle of that, the cross, the story of the cross has finished, and we enter into the story at a pretty bleak and grim moment of Mark's gospel. And to help us grasp this and help us relate to what's happening, I want to just take all of us to a place that all of us have probably experienced. I wonder how many of us remember the first time that we ever watched or heard somebody grieve over someone that they lost. I remember my experience very clearly. Uh, I was 11, almost 12 years old. It was 1991. 
I was in fifth grade, and it had been actually a hard year for my family. My mom had walked through a battle with breast cancer, and she was in recovery and doing well, but it was in September of that year. I, we were at our home, and I remember getting this phone call on our home phone, and I answered it, and it was my mom's aunt calling. But she didn't ask for my mom, which ticked me off that something wasn't right. She asked for my dad. So I remember giving the phone to my dad and watching him take the phone and watching the expression on his face change as he listened to her voice and then listening to the tone of his voice change. And he went into the other room to finish this conversation. When he got off the phone, he hung up and he came back and he told my brother and I to stay in the living room and he walked my mom to the back end of our house. And um, I wasn't sure what he was sharing with her. But what he was doing was going back there and he was sharing with her that her grandmother had passed away And this was the woman that had raised my mom. This was the woman that stepped into her life when her own mother stepped out. The woman that my mom had watched battle Alzheimer's for several years. And I didn't know that's what my dad was telling her, but I remember being in the living room of our house and just hearing this this groan come from my mom like I'd never heard before. It was this cry that came from a deep place within her of sorrow. And I just remember her wailing And the picture of my dad holding her and comforting her as she entered into this experience of loss. I'd never felt the weight of death in my life until that point. And I watched my mom receive the weight of that death pretty heavily. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of our story in Mark chapter 15. Let's look look in verse 42. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached... Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. We'll just pause here for a minute. So the, the, remember, Jesus died at midday on a Friday. The next day was the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, the Jews were not allowed to do any work, and that included burying your own dead. So this man, Joseph, who was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, this Sanhedrin group that we've talked about multiple times in here on Sundays. He stands up in opposition to his peers on the Sanhedrin and he wants to give Jesus this honor of burying him before the Sabbath. And so he comes to Pilate, look at verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, that Jesus was already dead. So summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. See, I think think Mark in this short passage here, he is trying to communicate one thing. He introduces five different characters that play a role in this part, and each of them is pointing to one undeniable fact, and that undeniable fact is that Jesus Christ has died. He's dead. You got Joseph, this man on the the Sanhedrin who comes to ask if he could have the body because he has seen that he is dead. You have Pilate who finds it hard to believe that he's already dead because many people would hang on a cross for a couple days before they died. And so he calls for the centurion, this third character, and the centurion goes and he verifies for Pilate that yes, in fact, Jesus is dead. And then you've got these two women named Mary who are there to witness the whole thing. They see Joseph take Jesus' body off the cross and put it in the tomb. And all five of these characters are in this story to verify that Jesus, in fact, was dead. And then Mark emphasizes it even more in his word choice. 
in verse 45 and 46, we find the word body, but it is not the same word for body in the original language that they would have used for someone who was alive, like you and I talking about our bodies. It literally is the word corpse. And so the picture he's giving is that Joseph goes to Pilate and he goes to the cross to receive the corpse of Jesus. I've never, really, I've never thought about that before till this, the corpse of Jesus. Those hands that had touched so many to bring healing to their lives were now just pale and, and lifeless. That mouth that had spoken so many wonderful and encouraging words was, was now just left open, no words coming out, just still. And those arms that had embraced children and welcomed kids into his midst were now lifeless and just at his side. Mark is trying to help us see that Jesus really is dead here. He has died. Many would teach later that maybe Jesus didn't really die, you know, the resurrection. Maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he just kind of passed out and they buried him and he came back. Mark is trying to help us see that is not what happened in this story, that Jesus has died. Now, I know that this is kind of morbid and, and very grim, but we just need to camp out here just for a minute more. I think all of us need to face this reality. You know, the reality is, is that the world that we live in, it is, it is just invaded by the reality of death, isn't it? We all know that it's true. It's like this cosmic elephant in the room. Many of us, it's not pleasant to think about. We don't like to think about it, but it is a truth and it is a reality. It's like this inconvenient reality about the world that we live in. We see it in like the story that I told about my mom and her grandmother. But it's not just that we see it in those that get older and their bodies wind down and die. We see it too when someone that is too young gets diagnosed with a life-taking illness. We don't just see it at work in the human body. We see it at work in many areas of our lives, right? So I buy a brand new car and it's only brand new for a little while and then it starts to what? Slowly break down. I buy new clothes, I buy a new shirt, and by the end of that year, remember, I, I have to replace that shirt because it starts to wear out or break down. It's like there is this gradual winding down at work in our world. And we all know that it's true. It is this unescapable reality, and none of us really like it, and I don't like it either. And this week, as I, as I wrestled with this idea of death and the reality that it, that it poses in our world, I kept thinking about our faith, about Christianity, you know, our faith is one that teaches hope and life and love. Have you ever thought about the irony that the symbol for our faith is a cross? A cross. A cross is the symbol of, it's a symbol of death. It was a, a, a device that was used to kill people like what killed Jesus, and yet it has become the recognizable symbol for the faith of Christianity. And in many ways this week as I reflected on it, you know, I thought, yes, the cross is an appropriate symbol for our faith, but in many ways the cross is an insufficient symbol for our faith. It's appropriate. The reason the cross is appropriate is because it points us to sin and the weight of sin. You see, sin is not just this list of do's and don'ts that we should or should not do. Sin is the weight that is on our world that brings death into our world. Death did not exist until sin entered the world. Death came into the world when sin came into the world. And so the cross reminds us of the weight of our sin, the weight of our guilt, and we look at it and we remember that Jesus went to the cross so we didn't have to. 
And it reminds us that as long as sin is at work in the world, that death will reign. And it reminds us of our own frailty. But it does more than that. The cross reminds us that we don't have a God who sits back at a distance and looks at this world where death is wreaking havoc and just watches it go on. No, we have a God who steps into this world. He steps toe-to-toe with death, and he looks it in the eye, and he goes to battle with it. This is the kind of God that we serve, and this is why the cross is an appropriate symbol. You know, I hear people ask, people say, okay, I understand sin, I understand Jesus, you know, had to come to earth, but why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? I think it's just because this is the unescapable reality of a broken world and humanity. We will all die like Jesus. And if Jesus was truly going to step into our shoes and take our place, he had to experience the depths of humanity the same way that we experience it. And so he comes to earth and he looks death in the eye and he even submits himself to death. But you know, although the cross is an appropriate symbol for our faith, I also think sometimes it is an insufficient symbol for our faith. And this is where the contrast comes in our story tonight in Mark. Let's look together in chapter 16. So in chapter 16, we turn this corner and now... Jesus has been buried, and chapter 16 starts on Sunday morning, and it says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. I want us just to imagine what this was like for these women. They have watched their friend, their teacher, their Lord die on Friday. They have seen his dead body placed in a tomb. You imagine the grieving that they've been experiencing. Probably spent their entire Sabbath grieving and mourning over the loss of Jesus. I I bet it was probably hard for them to eat. They probably didn't have much of an appetite. I bet they had a hard time sleeping on Saturday night. And so Sunday morning, it says they get up. And it's just after sunrise, they're on the way to the tomb. And in the, in the fog of their grieving and in their haste to get to the tomb, they forget that they don't have a way into the tomb. See, the tomb back then was a, a, would have been a cave that they would have rolled a huge stone in front of. And so look, in verse 3, it says, On their way to the tomb, they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And in verse 4, But... But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, who was dead. And look at these phrases He has risen. He is risen. He's not here. He says, see the place where they laid him. There's no body. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Just as he told you, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know, all of the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, they all contain more details about what happened at the tomb that day. They all contain more details about what happened after the tomb that day. But I think Mark keeps his account short and simple because he's trying to communicate one simple fact, and that is that that which was dead has become alive. 
that Jesus Christ, who he has just painted a very clear picture in chapter 15, was completely dead, has now become alive. He has risen. And so the cross, it is an appropriate symbol for our faith, but it is also an insufficient symbol for our faith because the story of Jesus does not stop at a cross. The story of Jesus goes on to an empty tomb and a resurrected life. For much of my life as a Christian, I think I just kind of made the resurrection like an afterthought. Like I, uh, the cross was always at the center of what I understood to mean the meaning of my faith. And the statement kind of went like this. It would be like, Aaron, you have sinned. And because of that, you are guilty. And because of that, Jesus needs to crawl up on the cross and die so that you, that guilt can be removed from you. That is a true statement. And yet it is also an incomplete statement. Because Jesus did not just die on a cross, but he went to a tomb and he conquered death for us. He arose from that tomb that he was placed in. You see, I think for much of my life, I have treated Christianity as though it is like this somber reality. I can remember coming to church on a Sunday and coming to the communion table. And even if I wasn't sad, I would like try to make myself sad, you know, because I thought I needed to take this juice and this bread. I need to remember Jesus on the cross and all the pain that he suffered. I remember when I was in college, we used to sing this song that went, can he still feel the nails every time I fail? And I would sing that and be like, oh God, I'm sorry. You know, and it's like we treat Christianity like it's this somber, sad experience. And I think it's because for many of us, we get stuck at the foot of the cross and we never get to see the empty tomb. But it shouldn't surprise us, you know, that we get, that, that, that the cross captures us more than the tomb. I think that the cross captures us. And I think we, we resonate with the cross because all of us are just all too familiar with our own sin. We're all too familiar with our own guilt and our own shame, right? And so this cross, this place where Jesus dies for us, feels like it carries so much meaning for us. The significance of the cross feels real to us because we all know our own failure. But I love this picture that Mark gives in chapter 16 because he tells the angel to give this message to these women and part of the message is, hey, go to my disciples and go to Peter. Go to Peter. He singles Peter out. Do you remember what Peter was doing the last time that we saw him in the story of Mark? The last time we saw Peter, he was betraying Jesus. He was denying him. He was sitting at the foot of the cross, so to speak, knowing that he had failed his Lord and failed Jesus. But Jesus shows up in the empty tomb. He says, hey, go get my disciples and even Peter. I want you to tell Peter that it does not end at the cross. It does not end with his denial and his betrayal. It comes to an empty tomb where life is made new again. And in the midst of Peter's failure, Jesus offers something new to him. I think the cross is relatable to us because we know our own failures, but Jesus says, come to the empty tomb. Come to the empty tomb and see that I'm alive. It doesn't end at the cross. I think the resurrection is hard for us to grasp sometimes because we all know that death is real, but the idea of life after death, it starts to feel a little bit like a fairy tale, right? It feels like mythology. But think about this. Why did humanity create fairy tales and mythology? It's because all of us long for the reality of death to be made untrue. 
We all long for death to be untrue. We just know there's something not right about death. And so at the cross, the old life dies, the life where death is king. But it's not enough to kill the old life. There has to be something new created. We know this. Think about when we baptize someone. When we baptize them, we say, you are dead in sin, and we don't just push them under water and then just hold them there, right? We say, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We raise them up to new life because there was an empty tomb. The cross, an appropriate symbol for our faith, and yet an insufficient symbol for our faith because there is an empty tomb on the other side of that cross. I think another reason we have a harder time resonating with the message of the empty tomb is because sometimes we don't feel the significance of the resurrection. We don't catch the depth of the meaning of what it means for us right now that Jesus literally rose from the dead, that Jesus literally conquered the one enemy that humanity has not been able to conquer, and that is death. So I want to just spend our last few minutes together looking at and unpacking the significance of this historical event that Jesus Christ beat death, the significance of what that means. What did the resurrection really accomplish for us? There's this guy named Paul who started following Jesus shortly after he was resurrected and he gave his life to telling those about the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And um, he would write many letters and he wrote much of the New Testament. And he wrote one letter to this little church called Corinth in a city called Corinth. Uh, and we have one of those letters in the Bible. It's uh, 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, you can. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul starts to talk about this idea of resurrection and why the resurrection of Jesus is such a crucial element of our faith. I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 19. And what I want us to see here is that the significance of the resurrection, what it accomplishes is two things. One, it accomplishes a new life after death. And two, it accomplishes a new life right now. That the resurrection creates a new life after death and it creates a new life right now. So look with me in verse 19 of chapter 15. Paul writes, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all of humanity. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the, just the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul here is even changing his language about death. I love this. He's not talking about falling asleep as the thing we do at night when we lay in bed. <laughs> Like he's taking death and he's saying, look, death is not eternal anymore. It is just like falling asleep. He says, Jesus is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now this sounds confusing, but what he is saying here is that at the very beginning, when God created, death was not a part of the picture. But when Adam and Eve chose independence from God, God, the source of all life, choosing independence from that God brought death into the world. And bringing sin into the world didn't just bring rules and rights and wrongs, but it created this shift in our reality. A cosmic shift occurred. It was like the creation that God made was fractured. 
But then what he says is just like death came in through one man, resurrection also came through one man and that man is Jesus. And it's like Jesus takes the creation that has been fractured and he clicks it back into place and sets it back on track to be in line with everything that God imagined. And so he says, so in Christ, all, all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ was the first fruit. And then when he comes, it will be for those who belong to him. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. See, the gospel, the promise of Jesus is that death is no longer our final destination. Death is no longer king. Death no longer holds control over us as humanity. But there is a new life that comes after death, that death is no longer an eternal thing, but it's like falling asleep and we will all awake with Jesus Christ. The promise of the gospel is that even though we will die in this life just as Jesus died, we will also rise just as Jesus rose. This is Christian resurrection, and this is not to be compared or not the same as what Hindus would teach as reincarnation or as what Buddhists might describe as rebecoming. This is rising as you. You will rise as, as you fully who you are. So it will be me, Aaron, that is resurrected. It'll be Stony. it'll be you that is resurrected. It'll be us completely in who we are. But it'll be us in the way we were meant to be, without our shame, without our fear, without our guilt, without our sickness, without our worries and our concerns, but it'll be us completely as we are intended to be in perfect relationship with the God of the universe. This is the picture that the writer John gives us in Revelation 21, where God says, look, I'm making everything new. The resurrection started this journey towards everything being made new, where God will wipe every tear and there'll be no more mourning because there will be no more death. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, I know many would hear that and you might say, okay, new life after death, that sounds like, you know, pie in the sky theology or escapism theology. It just gives Christians a reason not to care about what happens in this world because all you care about is getting to heaven. And, and I understand those objections. But that's why resurrection life is beautiful because it is not just about what happens after this life. See, resurrection life, it gives us hope for a life after death, but it also offers us new life right now. Resurrection life changes the way that we live in this world. You see, until we step into the reality of the resurrection life of Jesus, we will still live as though death is king. Until we embrace the resurrection life, we still live as though death reigns and has control over us. And this radically changes the way we live this life because we will live as if this is all there is. We will look at life as birth and death as the two bookends to all we ever experience and everything in between there is all we have to live for. But if we believe that death is no longer king, if we believe that our future is not just death in a grave, that our final destination is not a grave, it changes us radically. It will change everything about how we live in the present. It changes how we walk through the contrasts of this world. Remember what we talked about, the, the triumphs we experience in this world, but also the tragedy 
Resurrection life changes the way we encounter both of these things. It changes how we interact and how we deal with both the good and beautiful and wonderful things of this life and how we deal and interact with the really painful and hard and tragic parts of this life. Let's start with, with the good and wonderful things. You see, resurrection life, if we believe there's something more beyond this world, changes how we deal with the good and wonderful things. You see, when death was king, when death reigned, when we believed that this was all there was, the good and the beautiful things in this world threatened to define us. They threatened to give us our meaning and thus control us. Because if it's only for this life, then I need to hold on to everything that I can. I need to find my meaning behind everything in this world as best I can, and I need to indulge in every pleasurable, good experience as best as I can in this life, because once I die, I get nothing more. It's all gone. And when we do that, those things threaten to define us. Think about how this impacts our walk with God. If we are not living in resurrection life, and we look at this life as all that there is, then, then we'll say, okay, God, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll go with you, and I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do, unless it's going to cost me something unless you want me to give something up because this is all I've got and I don't want to have to give anything up. I think about how it impacts the way we look at work and success. I think those are good and beautiful things in this life, work and success, but, but when death is king and when the end we feel like is all there is, then our work and our success begin to define us. We begin to feel like we have to find our meaning and our purpose and how good we are at the things that we do. And when we do that, that begins to control us. But man, when we embrace resurrection life, when we believe that there is more beyond the grave than the good things of this life don't define us, they don't control us, we can enjoy them. We can appreciate them. But they don't define us and we don't need them. This week when I was working on my sermon, Brandon asked me, he said, hey, what do you think Jesus had in mind when he got up and walked out of that empty tomb? What do they have in mind for us? And I sat there and thought, and the first thing that came to my mind was Acts chapter two. See, Acts chapter two, we have this beautiful picture. You see the disciples have encountered the resurrected Jesus, and then they've gone to Jerusalem, and they have begun to preach that Jesus died, but that he has been resurrected, that death could not keep its hold on Jesus. And 3,000 people give themselves to this hope of resurrection. And in Acts chapter two, we have this beautiful picture of people just pouring themselves out for one another, showing that the things of this world do not define them, that they don't need them. Listen to this. In verse 43 of Acts chapter two, it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Another gift of resurrection life is the inbreaking of the kingdom now. Wonderful signs and miraculous works. But then look in verse 44, it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts where they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is a picture of people who understand that this life is not all there is and they don't have to hold on to everything in this life. And instead they, they open up their hands and they begin to live with this radical generosity towards one another. Because they realize there's more beyond the grave and our life is not defined simply by the things we have in this life. I've experienced this firsthand. I've received the radical generosity of God's people who live in resurrection life. I remember when I moved here two years ago, my wife and I and our two boys 
moved here from Canada and we had closed our church plan. It was a really hard season and we had sold most of what we had in order to have enough to get to move to Nashville. And when we got here, we didn't have a whole lot for our house. I remember one day Dave Clayton calls me. He's like, hey, what do you need? Like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what do you need for your house? I was like, I need a lot of things. He's like, okay, what do you need? I'm like, well, I need a washer. I need a dryer. My kids don't have a bed to sleep in. We don't have a kitchen table. Like, we just did not have a whole lot. And before I knew it, like within a day, he's calling me up and he says, I love to give our people a chance to be generous. And I don't know who, but somebody in the Ethos family, multiple people, I think, just opened their hearts and their hands to us. And within a week of moving here, my boys had a bed to sleep on and we were given money to buy a washer and dryer and somebody made us a kitchen table, <laughs> like gave us the gift of their time and their energy and made us a kitchen table. This is what it looks like to live the resurrection life now. When God calls us to go, we're willing to let go of wherever we need to. And when our family has needs, we're willing to open up our hands however we need to because we don't believe that our life is confined to what happens in between these two bookends. Work and success are redefined in resurrection life, right? Instead of extracting our meaning and our identity from our work, we get to bring meaning and hope to everything that we do. Even the most mundane tasks can be injected with hope and meaning because you see, in resurrection life, in resurrection life, nothing can take the hope that is planted within us. And so that's how we deal differently with the good and the wonderful things. But resurrection life also changes how we deal with the hard and the difficult things in this world. You see, when death reigns, when death is king, then the hard and difficult things of this life threaten to destroy us. If this life is all that there is, then we say, if this is what this life has to offer me, and we experience suffering and pain and sadness and death and loss and shame, it's like, what else is there? It feels hopeless. It feels like it's gonna destroy us. And so we try to run from these things. The problem is we can't run for them, right? We all know this. These hard things always have a way of finding us. And running from them does not deal with them. We see this in the disciples in the first century. You know, we'll read in chapter two, well, in, in chapters four through seven, chapters five through seven of Acts, we see persecution break out against the church. And we see how they respond to these difficult things. There's this man named Stephen. He literally had given himself to taking care of widows and people who needed extra help, and yet he gets arrested for preaching about Jesus. And they're getting ready to stone him. And Stephen, in chapter 7, is facing people about to stone him. And he looks up and he says, look, Jesus, the living Lord, I see him. And he's filled with hope as people with stones are getting ready to kill him. And he dies praying for the people that are murdering him. Like, how does that happen? It happens because Stephen understands the power of resurrection life, that his life is not limited to what happens in this lifetime. We experience this. All of us experience hard times, difficult times. In the past year and a half, my wife has been pregnant three times, and three times we have experienced the pain of miscarriage. Two of those times, it was so drastic that I had to rush her to the emergency room because she was bleeding and had to have emergency surgery. See, it, when death reigns, that experience would threaten to destroy us. The pain, the sadness, feels like it's gonna overwhelm us. But see, in resurrection life, we don't have to run from those things. We don't ignore them. My wife and I grieved. We cried. We wept with one another. 
And yet there is a hope that lives within us that is bigger than anything that this world can throw at us. Because Jesus Christ stood up and walked out of the empty tomb and he said, this is your destiny. This is where I'm leading you. There's more beyond what this life can throw at you. I'm alive and well and I'm gonna come back and bring you home with me. Everything you experience in this life is nothing compared with what you will get to experience in the life to come. And so resurrection life changes the way that we deal with the good and beautiful things of this world. And it changes how we deal with the things that are hard and difficult in this world because it gives us meaning and identity beyond the things that are of this world. As Christians, our call is not to to wallow in our guilt and shame at the foot of the cross. There is an appropriate measure of mourning and grieving, but our story doesn't stop there. As Christians, we're called to come to the cross, give everything to Jesus, and then follow him as he walks out of an empty tomb in resurrection, life, and power. This is who we are as the people of Jesus. And this is good news. This is great news that death has been overcome, the best news that the world could hear. As we wrap up our time, I want to just give you, give you a, a couple of invitations, things to think about as we go to communion. I know there are probably some of you here who have never come to the cross. You've never given your life completely to Jesus, and you're still walking in this broken world, carrying the weight of your own shame, your own brokenness, your own sin, your own sorrow. I just invite you, will you come to the cross? Like Jesus willingly wants to take those things off of you, put them on himself and suffer the things that you're suffering so that you don't have to. Will you come to the cross and then will you get up and follow him out of that empty tomb and walk in resurrection life? There are others of us here tonight who maybe have sat down at the foot of the cross, but we're having a hard time getting up from the foot of the cross and walking in resurrection life. Some of us tonight may be at at risk of being defined or controlled by the good things in our life. Others might be living in fear or unable to face something painful that's going on in your life right now. I just wanna encourage you right now, like if you need the resurrection life, if you've come to Jesus and you need the resurrection life to unshackle you from being controlled by the, the good things that you've put in your life, or if you need the comfort and the joy and the hope that the resurrection life can bring. Would you just share that with someone tonight? Don't carry it on your own anymore. This resurrection life is not something we walk through alone. We walk through it with one another. We walk through it with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And so over communion, like if you need prayers, pray with your friends. If, if you need prayers and you wanna talk with one of us, we'll be standing at the respond banner up here and we would love to hear your story and pray with you and encourage you and comfort you. If you wanna give your life to Jesus tonight, you can do that. Let's pray and then let's go take communion and let's walk out of here tonight full of hope and joy because Jesus Christ is risen and he is alive. Let's pray.